knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians chapter 2, Paul defends against three dangers that are ultimately trying to undermine Jesus' supremacy, Jesus' sufficiency. And this morning we're going to look at the, the second danger that Paul deals with, and it's a danger that is very prevalent uh, in the church world today. It's very prevalent just in our culture today, uh, and that is religious legalism. Religious legalism is the act of putting law and works above the gospel. And this is done by establishing requirements for salvation that are beyond faith in Jesus Christ. It's a belief that claims that there are certain rules, there are certain regulations I must adhere to, there are certain works that I must do in order to achieve salvation, in order to be spiritual and right with God. Now, it's important to understand that religious legalism is definitely at odds with the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel because the the gospel teaches that I receive my salvation through putting my faith in the work that Jesus has done for me, whereas religious legalism says that ultimately I'm, you know, trusting in the works that I do for the Lord. And so legalism is a works-based salvation that ultimately undermines Jesus's supremacy and sufficiency. What it's claiming is that, you know what, what Jesus did for you and I on the cross, his sacrifice, it was great, but it wasn't enough. It didn't give you enough to save you. You need to add to that. You got to add to that these rules. You got to add to that these regulations. You got to add to that these works. And when all of that is combined, then you can receive salvation. And so understand that that legalism completely undermines the sufficiency and supremacy of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But you know, the false belief that we can do something to work for, that we can do something to earn our own salvation, that's pretty appealing to people. You know, we like the idea that we can achieve something, that we can work for something, that we can do better than someone else and we can get it and perhaps they cannot. You know, that's something that, that we like. I know that you know, I like the idea of being able to earn things, be able to achieve things, be able to work for things. And this is why this is something that has been so adopted by many people. And if you look at all the major religions of the world, except for Christianity, you'll see at the core of this is this legalistic mindset that has this desire and heart to say, you know what? We as people can work our way to the God that we believe in. We can work our way to salvation or nirvana or, you know, whatever it is that that religious belief system has at the core, all of them have this, the same kind of thread that runs through it. And it's this thread of legalism that says, I can work my 
way, earn my way to these things. But Christianity teaches the exact opposite. It reveals to us that we can never work our way to God, that our works are like filthy rags, that there's nothing we could ever do to make up for all the sin that we've committed. There's nothing we could ever do to attain God's salvation And so the great news for us is that God decided to do the work. He said, I love you enough that I'm going to work my way to you. You can't work your way to me, so I'm going to come to you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do all the work to make it necessary for you to be saved, for you to have a relationship with me. Now, there are many religions in the world, but there's only one God-given religion. Religion And all other are man-made religions, and it shouldn't be surprising to us because we love the idea of earning and achieving that all these man-made religions have at the core, have at the heart, this idea of earning our own salvation or whatever it is that religious belief has. And so this is something that is very prevalent because of this desire within us. And it's easy sometimes for Christians to kind of try to add to the gospel, try to add to what Jesus has done and to buy into the idea that, yeah, it's so great that Jesus died for me, but there's a little that I need to do or maybe a lot that I need to do to kind of ultimately save me. And I got to work or I got to do rituals or I got to do whatever. And so this is something that uh, is a lie that's being spread today It's a lie that definitely was being spread there in Colossae, this lie of legalism. And this is what Paul is going to address in the verses we're going to look at this morning. And he's going to start by dealing with two of the main false things that, um, you know, legalists would say, you need to do this in order to be saved. And those two things are circumcision and baptism. And what Paul's going to reveal is that the point of both of those is really to, to point us to Jesus. He, he's the ultimate thing that we need. And, and since it's all about what Jesus has done and not what we do, Paul's going to give us a, a great challenge to those who would seek to judge us because we don't adhere to their legalistic mindset, their, their rules, their regulations, what they observe. He's going to help us see that, you know, those who would say you got to eat this and celebrate this day, we shouldn't let people judge us because ultimately those things were pointing to Jesus. He is what it's all about. And so as we look at the danger of legalism this morning, one of the best ways to overcome legalism is to remember something very important. When it comes to salvation, it's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is. It's all about the work that he has done for us. It is complete. It is sufficient. It is all that we need. Legalism is a mindset that ultimately adopts an idea that says, no, I need to do more. I need to add to that. And so one of the best ways to overcome it is to recognize the reality that, no, there's nothing for you and I to add. There's no work for you and I to do. We just need to put our faith in the work that Jesus has done for us. So let's start by reading the verses that we're going to cover this morning. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says this, In him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So Paul starts off speaking about two specific things that the legalists use to try to say, hey, you know what? You need to do this work in order to be saved. Those two things where you need to be circumcised in order to be saved and you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And so let's start with what Paul shares here that combats the the lie that says you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. He says this in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now remember, Colossae is a Gentile city. So the majority of the men who were in that church would have been Gentile men, which would have meant that they were not circumcised because this was something that the Jews did. This was not something that, you know, kind of continued on through the culture. Men did not want to do this, and the Gentiles would have not have been circumcised. But these legalists are coming into Colossae. Most likely they were of a Jewish background because they held dear to this idea of circumcision coming in and claiming, hey, you know what? Yeah, Jesus, the cross, that's all nice. But if you're not circumcised, then you're not truly saved. And so you have to have circumcision in order to have salvation. And, you know, we think, well, why is it so important to these Jews who would claim this? And so let's remind ourselves in Genesis 17 why the Jews valued circumcision so much where they would even come to this you know, unbiblical conclusion that it actually saves you. Genesis 17, 9 through 14 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And so circumcision was very important to the Jews. It was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and also with all of his descendants, the nation of Israel, of the covenant of, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you the promised land. And the most important one of all is in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because of the coming of the Messiah that's going to come through the line there of uh, the Jews. And so this was very important. And God says, hey, when your males are born at eight days old, they need to be circumcised. This is something that's going to represent this covenant that I have with you. And so because this was so important to Jews, and oftentimes they believe that, hey, the reason that we are right with God is because of the law that we have, because of our circumcision, because of our descendants of being a descendant of Abraham. You know, these are the things that make us right with God. And they're ultimately believing that, hey, because I'm circumcised, that's what saves me. And unless you are circumcised as well, you can't be 
saved. And so this heresy creeps in to the church believing this. Charles Hodge wrote this, Whenever true religion declines, the disposition to lay undue stress on the external rites is stressed. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, supposed that circumcision had the power to save them. Apostasy always moves the religious focus from the inward to the outward, from the humble obedience to empty formality. You know, I think this is a great description of what happened to many of these Jews who believed that it was these, this outward formality, these different things that they do that ultimately were going to save them instead of uh, trust and belief in Jesus Christ. Now, I find it very interesting the way that Paul addresses this heresy. He didn't just come right out and say, you know what, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved and move on. He brings up something that's even more important, the reality that there's actually two different types of circumcision. There's the one that these legalists were pushing, which is a physical circumcision, but there's also another circumcision as well. The physical circumcision was the one where you'd go to the priest and you bring your son to them, or you know, if you were an adult as well, you, know, you would have to be physically circumcised. They would literally cut away flesh from your body. But there's also a spiritual circumcision, and that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 11 when he says, in Jesus you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so in the Old Testament, when it's speaking of, you know, hey, go to the priest who literally with his physical hands is going to cut you. He's going to circumcise you. He says this is the physical act of circumcision, but there's a spiritual one without hands. There's no physical hands there, and there's no physical being cutting off of your flesh. It's something spiritual, and who does it? It's Jesus who does it for us. Jesus is the one who enabled us to put off our sinful flesh. Well, how in the world can we put off our sinful flesh? It's only because of the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for us. That's what is what enables us to have victory over our flesh, to have victory over sin. We would have never been able to do that prior to Jesus' sacrifice for us. And this the reality that there's two different types of circumcision shouldn't have been a new thing to these Jewish people who are saying, oh, you got to be circumcised to be saved. Because in the Old Testament, it also speaks of two different types of circumcision. It speaks of the physical circumcision of the flesh and also the circumcision of someone's heart. Deuteronomy 10:16 says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and notice this, and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. What God is saying there through Jeremiah is, hey, you know what? I'm going to punish both the uncircumcised with the circumcised here in Israel. What? We have a physical circumcision. God, how could you possibly punish us? How could you judge us? I mean, doesn't that save us? He's saying, no, the problem that you have is you're uncircumcised in your heart. Yeah, you might have the physical circumcision, but you do not have the spiritual circumcision. And this is the problem that these Jews who are legalists have as well. Warren Rearsby wrote this, The Christian circumcision is in contrast to that of the Jews. 
They had external physical surgery while believers have internal spiritual surgery on their hearts. The Jews' surgery involved only a part of the body, while for the believer, the whole body of the sins of the flesh was removed. When you accept this fact and reckon on it, you have victory over sins of the flesh that would enslave you. So the way that Paul deals with this legalistic heresy that you need to be circumcised to be saved is to bring up the reality, well, actually all you guys have been circumcised with the most important circumcision there is, the spiritual circumcision that Christ brings to you when you place your faith in him. And then there's another circumcision that does nothing for you that has no bearing on your salvation whatsoever, the physical circumcision that these guys are trying to get you to do. You don't need it. Because you already have what you need. You have the circumcision that Jesus gives to you, which is the ultimate thing that saves you because you've placed your faith in him, which enables this to happen. And so Paul is bringing up this reality that, no, this is a lie. This is not something that saves you. This is not something that you have to do in order to be saved. And so that first issue that was coming in is this belief that circumcision saves you. But there was another belief, which is more common today, because we're not really pushing circumcision as much today. But we do push another thing, and that is baptism. Uh, and there's many people who claim that you must be baptized in order to be saved. And so Paul's going to deal with that false teaching as well. In verse 12, he says this, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The Greek word translated baptism here means to be fully immersed in something. Now, when we use this word, we're usually speaking of water baptism to be fully immersed in water. And this is the same thing that Paul is referring to because this was the lie that was coming in. that Hey, you must be fully immersed in water in order to be saved. If you don't have this physical act of immersion in water, then sorry, you're not saved and you got big problems. But just like the physical act of circumcision doesn't save, neither does the physical act of being dunked in water save you Either It's just an outward sign of something that's far more important, the spiritual work that God has done in your life. That's what baptism is. It's just an outward demonstration of what has already transpired in you. And the reason it transpired in you is because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, hey, you know what? Baptism is just it's symbolic. This is what he reveals to us in verse 12. It's symbolic of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is really just something that identifies and points to what Jesus did for us, that he died for us, that he was placed in a tomb, and most importantly of all, that three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And so as you and I are placed under the water, that is symbolic and representative of the fact that Jesus was placed in that tomb. And as we come out of the water, it's symbolic of the resurrection that we have now with Christ not because we were put in water, but because of what he did and the fact that we have put our trust in that. So water baptism doesn't save us. It's just something that we identify with Christ in. And so it's a work that Jesus did that saves us, not a work that we do that saves us. So both circumcision and baptism, that's not what saves us. But now Paul's going to emphasize even more the work of Jesus, because that's what the most important thing is. They keep saying, this work you have to do, this work you have to do in order to be saved. Paul says, no, no, no. The work that's important to focus on, the work that we need to emphasize is the work that Jesus has done for us 
Notice what he says in verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So Paul is reminding the Colossian believers, he's reminding us of what we were before we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And this is something that's so important for us to remember. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses, speaking of our sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You know, for those who think that we need to work our way to God, that's the only way to be saved, Paul wants to bring them back to the reality of what they were. You're dead. You were dead in your sins. You weren't just sick with sin, and you just needed a doctor to help you a little bit, maybe to to prescribe some good works that you could do to to get you out of that sickness and and get you to the place of being healthy and okay, and and now I'm right with God because, yeah, Jesus did some work, and, and I've done some work myself and put those two together, and we're on the road to recovery. No, 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 we weren't just sick. We were dead. Dead people don't do anything. They have no capacity in themselves to get well because they're dead. They're incapable of doing something that would save themselves. And that is where we were before we placed our faith in Jesus. We were dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible tells us for the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence. That's what sin brought to us. It brings us death. And while we were dead in our sins, notice what Paul says that Jesus did for us. He made us alive together with him. And the reason that Jesus was able to take us from that dead state to being alive together with him, from going from death to life, is because of something that Jesus did. It was his work that made that possible. It wasn't something that we did. We didn't resurrect ourselves from the dead. Jesus did a work for us that made life possible. And Paul goes on to say, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here Paul tells us Jesus did three amazing things, three great works for you and I. First, he has forgiven us all our trespasses and sins. You know, this is something so important for us to realize, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for every sin that we did in the past, He died for every sin that we presently do, and he died for every future sin that we will commit later on in our life. He he sacrificed himself for it all. He paid the price for it all. And because Jesus died and paid the price for all of our sins, guess what? He was be able to forgive all of our sins as well. The second amazing thing that Jesus did for us is he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, these Greek words here translated handwriting of requirements, it's quite interesting the two ways that they were used in the Greek culture of Paul's day. First, they were used in a court of law by a judge. The handwriting of requirements were the list of crimes that a person was found guilty of and would be judged for. And so here are all the crimes, here are the things that you have done to break the law. Here are all the ways that you have uh, been found guilty. 
And the judge's role was to uphold the law, and so he would read these handwriting requirements. This is what you've done. These are the laws that you've broken, and now I am going to sentence you to whatever it is that the judge was sentenced to you with. Second, this Greek phrase was used by those who loaned money, whether they were you know, people in a bank or any other way in which you were to loan money. The handwriting of requirements were the outstanding debts that you owed that you couldn't pay back. And so they'd come to you and they'd say, hey, you owe all this money. Oh, sorry, I don't have any money. Well, then guess what? You're bankrupt. You're in debt and you can't pay it back. And now you're in trouble. Now, both of these are very descriptive. And I think they're great for us to recognize because this is exactly what the law of God does to us. It reveals to us first and foremost that, hey, we're guilty. You know, that's what the law does. We look at the law. We look at God's perfect standard and we look at it in light of our life and how we've lived. It reveals something. We are guilty of breaking many, many of the commandments and many of those commandments many times. We're guilty of breaking the law of God. It's a handwriting of requirement against us. It's this list of, hey, you're guilty here. You're guilty there. You're guilty here. You're guilty there. But it's also something that shows us, hey, we're, we're spiritually bankrupt, We're in debt in a way that we could never pay back. And this is a problem that each one of us have, that the handwriting of requirements that are against us is a very bad thing for us because it reveals the state that we're in. Guilty sinners who are spiritually bankrupt. But notice what we're told that Jesus did for us people who are in that state. We're told he wiped it out. He has taken it out of the way. You know, both of these Greek words here, these statements that are made, paint two beautiful pictures of what Jesus has done. The Greek word translated wiped out means to cover with whitewash, to erase, to blot out. Uh, This was usually used within, you know, when you're writing a document and and then you made a mistake or you wanted to change something, there was an error or there there was something that was going to be changed, you would get this whitewash, you would blot it out, and then you would write over. You would change what was there to something different. Now, today, we have the, the age of computers. We hit backspace, and everything just miraculously disappears. When I was in high school, I wasn't blessed with computers. If I had to type a paper, I typed it on a typewriter. And you know what? When you made mistakes and you weren't a very good speller like I was, then you'd have to go back, and you'd have to correct things. And how do you correct things when you don't have a computer? Well, you get this little thing called whiteout, and you pull it out. It's just white liquid. It had a little brush on it. And you've got to brush over the words that you made a mistake on. Then you blow on it until it dries. And you've got to put your paper back in the typewriter, hope it's all lined up again, and then type back over that what you're actually wanting to say correctly. But that you know, whiteout, ultimately, it covered up. It blotted out what was originally there so that you could put something else over it. And so this is kind of the picture of this word. We have this handwriting of requirements that's written out against us. What does Jesus do? He openly wipes it out. He covers up those things that are against us. But we also see this other Greek phrase, taken out of the way. And this was used to describe the canceling of a charge or a debt. And once again, we already saw you know, what the handwriting requirement was. It shows we're guilty. It shows that we you know, have this debt, and it's a canceling of that. Hey, you know what? I know you're in debt, but you don't have to pay it back. Why? Because someone else paid it for you. I know you're guilty, but you're not going to be judged. Why? Someone else has taken your punishment for you. And it's Jesus who did that, because notice 
how he was able to wipe out, how he was able to remove the handwriting requirements. We're told he did it by nailing it to the cross. Jesus was able to wipe out and remove our guilt, remove what we did because we broke the law, because he perfectly kept it. He lived that perfect life. He never broke God's law, but even more importantly, he paid the price for the things that we broke, for the sins that we committed. And there's this wonderful picture that Paul is painting here for those that would have been very familiar in the Roman culture of that time when he says, having nailed it to the cross. And this might even bring you know, a picture to your mind because this is something that happened with Jesus as well. You know, the Romans, they crucified as a deterrent to crime. And so what they would do is when you were guilty of stealing, we know there were thieves crucified next to Jesus, you were guilty of murder, you were guilty of insurrection, whatever it would be, they would put above you, written out, what you're guilty of. And so as you're there suffering on the side of the road in agony, people walk by and they see thief. They think, I'm never stealing. I don't want to end up like that guy. They see murderer. I'm never going to kill anyone. I don't want to end up like that guy. But that was literally nailed to the cross. What they were accused of, the crime that they were found guilty of, was nailed there with them. And this is interesting because this is what happened with Jesus. If you remember both in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, so that everyone could read it, was his crime. And the crime that they put was king of the Jews. But this is great imagery that Paul is using here of the reality that, you know what, you're guilty. And those who were guilty, they get crucified. And while they're being crucified, it's nailed on that cross the crimes that they're guilty of. But he's painting this picture for us of how great it is for us because guess what? We're not the ones on the cross. We're not the ones paying the price for our crime. Our crime is on the cross, but we're not. Jesus is on the cross in our place. He's the one taking the punishment that we deserve. And so it's this beautiful picture of the reality that it was nailed to the cross. All those handwritings, all the things that were against us, the reality of what we're guilty of, it's nailed there. It's real, but yet we're not the ones who had to pay it because Jesus paid it for us. So the first amazing thing that Jesus did is he's forgiven us all of our trespasses and sins. The second amazing thing is he wiped out and removed the handwriting of requirements against us, nailing it to the cross. The third amazing thing is in verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know, this is a wonderful aspect of what Jesus did that we often don't really dwell upon and think about very much. We recognize his sacrifice conquered death. He rose from the dead. His sacrifice conquered sin. You know, he enabled us to overcome it and be forgiven of it. And we, we love that part of the cross. We love what Jesus did with that. But we sometimes re forget the reality of his sacrifice on the cross also conquered Satan and his demons. That's what's being spoken of when we hear this word principalities and powers. Jesus conquered his ultimate enemies and ours as well. And notice what we're told. He disarmed them there on the cross. But you know what he disarmed them of? Their power over us. Before we accepted Christ, we were ultimately slaves of Satan. He had great power. Demons had great power and influence of our lives. But on the cross, they've been disarmed. Their power that they have over us is no longer there because of what Jesus did and the fact that he now dwells within us. F.F. Bruce wrote this about what Jesus did to Satan and his demons. 
As Jesus was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, they imagined they had him at their mercy and flung themselves on him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their attack without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of the armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. I just imagine at that moment of you know, Satan and the demons thinking, hey, we actually have won. We've crucified God. You know, and all of a sudden, they come to the realization that Jesus' death is a thing that totally triumphs over them, the thing that completely disarms them and wipes them out. And they go probably from this you know, elated look at what we've done to, oh, wait, what we've just done has completely defeated us and destroyed us. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And so what Paul is bringing up here is this mindset of complete victory. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize it was a complete victory for you, a complete victory for me. On the cross, Jesus had victory over all of our sins. That's why he's able to forgive all of our sins. On the cross, Jesus had complete victory over the handwriting of requirements that showed that we are guilty, that showed that we are in debt, and he was able to wipe those things out. He was able to take them away from us because of what he did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus had victory over Satan and his demons, Why? It's which is why he's able to disarm them, why he was able to triumph over them. What Jesus did on the cross was a complete victory, which also reveals it was completely sufficient to save us. There's nothing that we need to add to that. We don't look at that and say, wow, that's amazing, but it wasn't quite enough. I wish you would have done this too, Jesus. I wish you would have you know, defeated this or I wish you would have you know, done more. No, it's complete. What he did was everything that we need to be saved. We don't need to now stand and think, wow, that was great, but I have to add this ritual. I have to add this rule. I have to add this work and then I'll be saved. Think of how much that diminishes the work of Christ. Yeah, it was nice, but not enough. It was good, but not really that good. I'm going to have to finish this off. Thanks for getting it started, Jesus, and I'll complete it with what I do. I'll ultimately need to save myself. Paul's saying no. Jesus had complete victory. We don't add circumcision. We don't add baptism. There's nothing that we need to add to the work that Jesus did. Now, because of the complete victory that Jesus had on the cross, because it's completely sufficient to save us of all of our sins, Paul now has a practical challenge to the Colossian believers and to us. For those who would, in their legalistic way, bring a judgment against anyone who doesn't follow what they think that we should. Notice what he says in verse 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Paul says, so let no one judge you. This word so actually is very important. It connects what Paul has is just saying here, let no one judge you, with what he has just said right before it, that, hey, Jesus has had complete victory, victory in the cross over all these things. And because of Jesus' complete victory, that's the reason why you shouldn't let people judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons 
or Sabbaths. F.F. Bruce wrote, it would be preposterous indeed for those who had repeated the benef- uh, for those who had reaped the benefits of Christ's victory to put themselves voluntarily under the control of the power which he had conquered. Now think of this, Jesus has complete victory. Victory over our sins, victory over these things that these rules and regulations that they're claiming you got to do in order to be saved. No, 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 you don't. All you got to do is put your faith in what Jesus has done. And how foolish of us when we're in that place of complete victory to put ourselves under things that Jesus defeated on our behalf. To say, I'm going to go back to the rules. I'm going to go back to the regulations. I'm going to go back to these things, these works. When he's like, no, 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 I've just done everything to free you of that. I've done everything to make it possible for you to be saved. But sadly, This is where the legalists were. No, 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 you you need to come back. You need to do these works. You need to follow these rituals. You need to abide by these rules. We've already looked at two of the main works that they claimed, circumcision and baptism. But there are also many more that came specifically from those with the Jewish background. There were certain dietary laws that we know in the Old Testament, certain things that they claim you better eat and certain things you better not eat, certain things you should drink and certain things you shouldn't drink. And then there's days that you need to observe. There's Jewish feasts that you need to observe. There's Sabbaths that you need to observe. And they're claiming, hey, if you don't observe these things and eat this way, guess what? You're not saved. So not only is it circumcision and baptism, but it's these other you know, days and foods and rituals But notice what Paul tells them before actually we look at that. What typically happens when you don't do what legalists think you should? (laughs) How do they respond to that? If you've ever been around someone who has a very legalistic mindset, you'll discover real quick. They love to judge those who don't do what they claim that you should. That's the way that they treat you. Hey, you do this or you're not saved. You do that or you're not saved. This work and this work and this work. And if you're not upholding the things that they claim that you should, well, then they bring their judgment upon you. (laughs) You know, you horrible, wretched person, you're going to hell. There's no way you could be saved. You don't do these things. And this is what was happening to those in Colossae. There's people coming in and they're bringing this judgment against them. Hey, if you don't eat this or you don't avoid this certain food, if you don't abide by these Sabbaths, if you don't you know, uphold to these Jewish feasts, you're not saved. And so Paul's saying, don't let these people judge you in these things. And then he gives a reason why. Well, why shouldn't they let them judge them, you know, according to these Jewish dietary laws and these Jewish feasts that they're saying are necessary for salvation? Well, the reason why, notice what Paul says in verse 17. Because those things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So the kosher diet, the the Old Testament feast, the Sabbaths, all that stuff were just a shadow of things to come. But notice the substance is of Christ. You know, the Greek word shadow means an image cast by an object and representing the form of that object. The Greek word translated substance means the, that which casts a shadow as distinguished from the shadow itself. And so, you know, as you look at your shadow as the sun is shining on you, you know, that's just a substance. You know, it kind of has your image and your form. You know, you can see, oh, that's me, that's my shadow. But, you know, the, the real substance is you. You know, it's just casting a shadow based off of you. So you're the real thing that's just pointing back to you. And so what Paul is saying is these dietary laws, the days that were to be observed, are just a shadow of things to come. 
But Christ is the one who casts the shadow. You know, what you're seeing is just a shadow, but guess what? It's Jesus. He's here, and the shadow is what you're looking at, but he's the substance because he's the one casting the shadow. It's actually pointing back to him. The shadow is revealing, hey, there's something greater. There's the substance, and that substance is Jesus himself. So the dietary laws, the religious feast, you know, in another way to say it, are just a picture of Jesus. They're pointing to Jesus. For example, one of the main feasts that the Jews celebrated was the Feast of Passover. And these legalists would have definitely said, hey, you don't celebrate this feast, you're not saved. This is a feast you have to celebrate. It's essential. If you don't celebrate the Feast of Passover, then, you know, you cannot be saved. But you know what? Passover was the feast celebrating God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And it focused on a very particular plague, the final plague, the tenth plague, where God kills the firstborn. But God tells the nation of Israel, there's a way to protect your firstborn. You need to find an unblemished lamb. You need to kill that lamb. You need to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost and lintel. And when the death angel comes to kill the firstborn... And each home, when he comes to your home and the blood of the lamb is there on your home, he will pass over your house and the judgment of God will not be given in to you. Now think about that. What is that pointing to? What do we know where there's an unblemished lamb whose blood is shed so that the judgment of God passes over us and isn't given to us? John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. This was pointing. This was just a shadow. God could have chosen anything to say, you know what? The angel of death's not going to touch your house for whatever reason. Why does he choose to kill a lamb and to put the blood there? Because it's pointing to the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, who is going to shed his blood on the cross for us so that the judgment of God that we deserve could pass over us because Jesus received it himself. And so there was just a shadow pointing back to the substance, which is Jesus. You know, a shadow has no substance in itself, has no existence or meaning apart from what it's a shadow of. It only exists as evidence of the real thing. So now that you have Jesus, the one who cast the shadow, Paul's saying, you don't need the shadow. You got the, you got the real deal. Why, why do you care about the shadow? You know, you have Jesus. Well, why focus on these things that are just pointing to him when you have him yourself? If you have Jesus in the flesh, you don't need a picture of him anymore. You know, when Jenny and I were engaged, I was in Scotland and she was in Alabama and, you know, before the days of, you know, all our modern technology. And so she would send me pictures and it was great to to see her face because I couldn't be with her physically. And I loved getting those pictures. But, you know, when we finally got married and were together, you know, I didn't care about getting pictures of her anymore because I could actually be with her. I could see her real face in front of me. But how silly it would be if Jenny's right here and I turn away from her and I, you know, about this picture and I hug the picture and I kiss the picture and I hold the picture and oh this picture is so great and I love this picture when I have her right here but this is what Paul is saying you know you guys are, are holding the picture the shadow all these things that were pointing to Jesus and you've missed the real thing all you need is him all that stuff was just pointing to him all that stuff is worthless it's not going to save you Jesus and what he did is all you need You know, the legalists who believe that these shadows will save them, they should ask themselves, 
Why would anyone be satisfied with a shadow when they can have the real thing? Why focus on old sacrifices, which are just shadows of forgiveness and reconciliation, when they could actually have true forgiveness and true reconciliation? Now that we have the real thing in Jesus, we don't need the shadow. And so Paul's saying, don't let people judge you with that stuff. You got the real thing. They're the ones with the problem. They're the ones with the issue. They're the ones who are missing it. Don't let them judge you. You got Jesus, and that's all you need. There's nothing you need to add to his work. You just have to put your faith in what he's done. Jesus' death on the cross for our sin is all we need for salvation, and that's the best way to combat a legalistic mindset because it wants to take our eyes off of Jesus, off of what he did, off of who he is, and put it on ourselves. And it's really a prideful, arrogant thing to think, oh yeah, now I can achieve, I can earn, I can add to this work, and I actually have to in order to be saved. But to recognize, no, what Jesus did is complete, it is sufficient, there's nothing that I need to add to it in order to be saved. And that's such a wonderful, great message. This is why the gospel is good news.